In the previous episode, we looked at one of the best ways to test out a new career idea while still being in employment. These are informational interviews. If you want to take your career research to the next level and want to set up your first call with someone already doing what you want to do, then go check it out. Are you feeling stuck in your career and life? I'm Chris, and in 2018, I was sick of my job, I quit, and I decided to go traveling around Asia. I wanted to do my own thing. After trying lots of different business ideas and making a lot of mistakes along the way, I finally found a new path and qualified as a coach. This podcast is me documenting my journey as a coach on a mission to help you find a career that matters to you. And going beyond your career, you'll get all the tools you need to smash your personal projects too. Are you ready to close the gap on where you want to be? Let's go! Hi guys, you're listening to the You in 5 Years podcast with your host, Chris Holmes. For the 30th episode, we have an extra special guest on the show. We have Richard Fenton, co-founder of Courage Crafters and author of the best-selling book, Go For No. His book has been in the top 50 of sales books on Amazon for the last 10 years. Many people do not know how prolific a writer Richard is. He took three years off from 2015 to 2018 and wrote a 10-book paranormal suspense fiction series. What I love about Go For No is that it teaches you how to manage your fears around failure and rejection. And if you're going through a career change, being able to see failure and rejection in new ways means you'll have the confidence to go for new opportunities. In this extended episode, we'll look at Richard's journey and take a closer look at some of the key ideas in the book. Let's get into it. Hi, Richard. Welcome to the podcast today. Hey, Chris. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to chat. So could you please tell our listeners a little bit about your backstory, please? And yeah, brief overview of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my my backstory in particular, how it connects to the book is I started my first serious job in the world of sales, working for my father in the automotive fleet industry, selling corporate vehicles. And after a few years, my dad called me into the office and told me, you know, the exciting news that I was going into sales and with absolutely no sales training whatsoever, he sent me down to my office and said, here's your phone. Here's the phone book. Start making cold calls. And to say the least, the first 30 days were very rough. As a matter of fact, I was so afraid of picking up the phone. I didn't call anybody for the first 30 days. So finally, I, uh, I went back and I had to tell my dad that I didn't know how to sell. And I made a huge mistake. It really wasn't a mistake. My life turned out really well, so I can't complain. But I thought the only way to handle the fact that I couldn't sell was to quit the car business. So that's what I did. I quit my job, moved from Chicago all the way to Los Angeles. And interestingly, the first job I took was in sales, where I found myself failing again. I was working for a men's clothing chain, and I kind of thought that I'd left my failure behind me in Chicago and then realized that my fear of the word no was going to follow me wherever I went. And then I had the um, the miracle of miracles happen. The district manager, a man by the name of Harold, came in to visit the store. And I thought, man, if I could just impress this guy, maybe they'll give me a chance to, you know, to pick up my sales and they won't fire me. And in walks this very well-dressed gentleman who immediately announces that he wants to buy an entire wardrobe of clothing. And I spend the next half hour with this guy and he buys $1,100 worth of stuff. I mean, I'm talking suits, sport coats, shirts, ties, shoes, socks, belts, underwear, collar pin, pocket square. I mean, it was an entire wardrobe of clothing. And I'm waiting for this guy, Harold, to congratulate me on this great sale. And uh, he doesn't say anything. So I start working my way over to him. And finally, he throws me a bone. He says, that was a nice sale, kid. And I said, yeah, man, did you see that? $1,100. I was like so proud of myself. And then Harold asked me the question that would literally change the course of my life. 
He said, out of curiosity, Richard, what did that customer say no to? And it really, I mean, it, it felt like he slapped me. I, I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? What did he, what, what did he say no to? I said, were you not watching the sale I just had? I start running through all the things that, you know, customer just bought. He goes, I, I know what he said yes to, Rich. I'm asking you, what did he say no to? And when I stopped and I thought about it, I realized the customer hadn't said no to anything. Every single thing I showed that guy, he said yes to. And then Harold asked me the other really great question. He said, well, then how did you know he was done shopping? Hmm. Well, the reason I knew is that I was a young guy. I wasn't making any money. The idea of a customer walking into a clothing store and spending $2,000, $5,000, $10,000, that was so far outside of my consciousness that when a customer got to my mental spending limit, which was about a grand, they were done. I, you know, I, I rang up the sale and sent them on their way. And Harold, Harold said, you know, I watched you sell and you're not half bad. He said, but your fear of the word no is going to kill you. And then he said, if you can just get over that, he said, I've got a sneaky suspicion that you're going to be one of the great ones. And I went home that night thinking, oh my God, everything I thought my function in my job was, which was to get people to say yes to me, was completely wrong. That my function was really to go into work and show lots of products and offer, offer lots of services and get people to say no to me more. And if I could get people to say no to me more often, the yeses would come, they would come automatically, they would come naturally, and they'd come with less stress. And so I walked in the next day and I, I had a new attitude. I said, I don't know if I have what it takes to be successful, but I know I have what it takes to fail. And if increasing my failure rate is a way to get to success, then darn it, I'm going to try it. And it worked. And that led to writing the book eventually. Well, before that, it led to moving into management and then moving into training. And everywhere I went, the go for no concept worked. And then eventually... I wrote the book with Andrea and we launched our business. And uh, here I am talking to you, Chris. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I just love how that one encounter with Harold just completely changed your relationship with the word no and how you were able to see it in a more positive way. Yeah, absolutely. Could you please tell our listeners some of the kind of key lessons in the book? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the book first off is written as a as a fable. So it's really kind of fictional, nonfiction, if you were. It's a fictional story about a young guy who, you know, finds himself failing just like me. And in case you haven't figured this out yet, folks, it's based on my life. And so I kind of wrote the, the main character, you know, working for a, working for a clothing chain and uh, having had this experience, but he has a, an exceptional event happen, which is he gets knocked out and ends up living in a universe where the him that doesn't understand that failure is a good thing gets to meet the him that got the lesson that he should increase his failure rate. And the person who's willing to fail is mega successful. And the one who's avoiding failure is the one who's struggling. And so it's, it's really kind of a fantasy book, but it does bring up the question, which is if you could meet yourself 20 years in the future and that person was mega successful, wouldn't you like to learn those lessons? And what if the lesson, the future you told you was fail more, be willing to take more chances. Don't be so afraid of having people tell you no. And so that really is the, the basic premise behind the book. And then really we talk about a bunch of things, which are, you know, the five different failure levels and the fact that you should set no goals, which doesn't mean you should set no goals. People should have goals, obviously but that you should set goals for the number of times you want people to say no to you. 
You know, most people wake up in the morning and they in the, in the sales job in particular, or maybe somebody who's going out for you know interviews, right? And they go like, I'm going to go out for interviews today, and I'm going to get I'm going to get you know someone to say yes to me. And when they do that, every interview they go on, they feel this enormous pressure to get someone to say yes, right? You go into the interview tense, just like somebody would go into a sales very a sales situation, very tense. If they were, if they had to get the person to say yes, then all they can do is be nervous and apply pressure. And you know what the book kind of teaches people, and no matter what the situation is, what if you change that scenario and said, my goal and function in every interaction is just to get people to say no to me. And the minute that you do that, all the pressure releases. Hey, I'm going to go on this interview. It doesn't matter. I'm going to relax. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to be myself. I'm going to present my best self. I'm not going to intentionally try to screw up the interview, but I'm not afraid of the fact that the person may reject me. And when you go in like that, you go in relaxed and you go in natural and you go in as yourself. And really being yourself in an interview, whether it's a job interview or a sales interview, doesn't matter. The more relaxed you are, the more natural you are, the more people are drawn to you. And so that's kind of the underlying premises behind the book. And there's a bunch of other lessons as well. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, definitely taking off the the pressure just by kind of seeing it as a numbers game almost. Right. One of the things about the, the numbers game thing, I mean, that is the, the basic premise is that it's a numbers game. But there's also this strong emotional psychological component to it. You know, people can get this concept intellectually. They go like, yeah, okay, I get it. Increase my nose. But that doesn't mean that they get it or can handle it emotionally. Because if every no to you is taken as a personal affront, if every time someone says no to you, you think you screwed up, you think you did something wrong, you think you're failing, well, then that emotional toll is going to have you back away from opportunities, right? To make sales, to get a job, whatever it happens to be. So you have to learn to not take no personally. No is not personal. The joke we make is, could you imagine two different ice creams, a chocolate and a vanilla in an ice cream shop, and a customer comes in and buys a you know, scoop of chocolate, and the vanilla goes, oh man, I just got rejected. No, it didn't. The customer preferred chocolate. The next customer comes in, and they ask for vanilla, because the, the yeses and noes are really not about you. These are all about customer preference. And if you just let it be about the customer, not about you, then you can take it a lot less personally. Yeah, I love that. And with the new model for success and failure, could you please explain a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, I think the standard way that most people think of their function when they, when they wake up in the morning and they're trying to go about their day, whatever their business happens to be, is that they want to get people to say yes to them. They view success and having people say yes as the goal. And therefore, Everything they do, all of their actions are designed to try to get people to say yes. And then on the other end of the spectrum is no, failure, rejection. And we think of that as bad, right? Success is good, failure is bad. Well, if you're thinking of it in those terms, then it's no wonder that everybody does everything they can to get people to say yes, while simultaneously trying to avoid having people say no. That's kind of the way most people operate. What we've done with the book is we've created a new model. And the new model is that instead of thinking of failure and success on opposite ends, we said, what if you're over here? And what if failure is in the middle? Hearing people say no, being rejected, right? Not getting what you want is here. 
and the success that you want is all the way on the other end. And what if instead of thinking, I've got to choose between success or failure, what if you said, I need to go through failure to get to success? In other words, success and failure are a package deal. You know, a lot of people think they're, you know, what's the opposite of success? And most people will say failure. And we can't know the opposite of success is not trying. Failure is part of success. Failure and success are really just opposite sides of the same coin. They come together. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have massive success without massive failure. You can't have a little bit of success without a little bit of failure. So the people who try to avoid failure are by its very nature avoiding success. So we say you don't choose which way you go through the failure on the way to success. It's almost like a stepping stone, isn't it? Absolutely. They are stepping stones. And if you can think of every no you hear as something that's bringing you closer to the success you want, as compared to something that's bringing you further away, a typical person will, you know, if you want to try to make a sale and you make a call and a call and a call and all three calls are no, a lot of people go like, oh, this is a bad day. This isn't working out. I just don't have it. And so they think they're on the wrong path because they keep hearing no. Well, what if the path to yes is actually like you just called it, the stepping stones, which are the no's? What if every no is actually taking you closer to the success you want rather than further away? If you can reframe that in your mind and you start thinking of no as a positive thing, then every time you hear the word no, instead of going, oh, I got another no, you start going, yeah, I got another no. And I know it sounds like we're just playing mind tricks here. I don't care. If it's a mind trick that gets you to where you want to be, great, right? Mind trick, a lot of life is about mind tricks. So, you know, however you want to picture it, that's where you want to be is success. No is how you get there. You mentioned that some people might understand it like intellectually, but then, you know, in reality might not be able to deal with that kind of like rejection and failure. So could you please explain the five levels of failure? Yeah, absolutely. Level one really is just, it's the, it's the ability to fail. I mean, face it, we all have the ability to fail. Everyone on planet earth has the ability to fail, right? You just, you try anything, you might fail. And then you have the willingness to fail, which is the second level. It's like everyone has the ability, but are you willing to do it? You know, a lot of people will just go like, I don't want to fail under any circumstances. They're not even willing to do it. But when they go out and they try, you know, to, to not try to fail, but when they're willing and they take a chance, they're, they're not doing it in a, in a way that brings them any joy or enjoyment. It's they do it begrudgingly. It's that thing like, oh, I'm going to have to go through failure if I'm going to get to success. I hate this. You know, it's just like, oh, yeah, failure is the bad part of it, right? And when you go into it, that attitude, well, it's it's no different than just having the ability. You're just, you're forcing your way. Level three, which is where it gets really interesting to me, which is what we call the wantingness to fail. You know, willingness is, okay, I'll do it if I have to. Wantingness is where you say, I want to actually get five people to say no to me today. Willingness is I've got to get five people to say no. Wantingness is like, I'm going to get five people to say no to me. And when you have the, the wantingness to hear more no's, that is really where everything changes. Because now suddenly no becomes a positive factor in your life instead of it being a negative drawback. Then we have level Four, which is really failing bigger and failing faster. Bigger means 
who are these companies, if you're a salesperson, that you've been avoiding because, oh, that company's so big. They're a multi-billion dollar company. I can't call on them. They're so big. Well, you know, whether somebody at a small janitorial supply company that's, you know, that's doing $300,000 a year tells you no, or somebody at a huge conglomerate that's doing $300 billion a year, a no is a no is a no. You're talking to one person. They're saying no to you once. The, you know, what's behind it doesn't matter. So, so we're saying be, be willing to fail bigger sometimes and then be willing to fail faster. You know, a lot of people are like, okay, I'm going to go out and get somebody to say no to me today. And then they get one no and they go, okay, I'll go out and try to get another one tomorrow. This might be really true of people who are looking to get a job, people who are, who are going out on job interviews. You know, they think that, oh, if I went on one job interview today, I did the best I could. I'm not really, you know, if you're going to believe in the numbers game and you're going to believe that you have to find the right person on the right day with the right job opportunity at the right pay offer, I mean, the right background that you have that matches to the needs, you're probably going to need to go out on more than one interview a day. You're probably going to have to go out and make more than one sales call a day. So you need to fail bigger, go after bigger opportunities, but also be willing to fail faster. Can you increase that failure rate? Can you get four, five, six people, 10 people? I don't know what's possible. In telemarketing, telemarketers get 200 no's a day. I mean, it's dial, no, dial, no, dial, no. I mean, it's like dialing, 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 no, 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 no. So they're failing as fast as you can imagine. You know, a great example with, with Andrea and I, when we started selling in our business, we used to get on the phone with every company that we wanted to sell a speech or a workshop to. And we'd get on the phone with the person and we would do everything within our power to try to keep them from saying no to us. And we would try to convince these people that we were the right fit and they should hire us and they should bring us in. And then one day we realized, you know, the first thing is, do they have meetings? <laughs> it's like, do they even have meetings? And if they have meetings, do they bring in speakers? Well, we used to spend 20 minutes before we got to those questions. And you can imagine how many times we got 20 minutes in making our best sales pitch. And then what happened? They said, we don't have meetings. Oh, no. <laughs> we don't bring in speakers. So that what we did, we changed it. We said, let's fail faster. We get on the phone. Hey, before we launch into our big sales pitch here, and we ask you, do you guys have meetings? Oh yeah, we have lots of meetings. You bring in speakers from the outside? Yeah, we do. Great. And then we would launch into the sales pitch. Because if they were going to say no to us, why not get the no 30 seconds in? Why would you postpone it? So that was our way of, in, of increasing the speed at which we could get companies to say no to us. And then finally, the fifth of the five levels is to fail exponentially, which really is a, it's kind of a function of management, a function of leadership. If the idea that an individual can be more successful by increasing their individual failure rate, then doesn't it stand to reason that a leader should be trying to get everybody on the team to fail faster so that the team failure will equate to team success? And so the, the leader, we call them the go for no leaders who finally get this concept, understand this is not an individual thing that you just handle with one or two people here or there that are struggling. This is something you should be teaching the entire team so that everybody is going out there trying to increase their failure rate. You increase team failure, you increase team success. SpaceX is probably a company that I can think of that might be doing that in terms of you know, with their rockets and Elon Musk and, uh, you know, level five, trying to get everyone to see the importance of failing fast to you know, get, get, yeah. to where, get to Mars is where they want to get to. 
Absolutely. And, you know, a, a great example of that, and people here, people have heard, I imagine, the story of Thomas Edison. You know, the reporter goes to him and says, how does it feel to have failed, you know, 10,000 times? And Edison said, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I successfully found 10,000 ways to not make a light bulb, right? So he's failing. But what they don't know about the story about Edison is that as Edison was moving along, he realized that he couldn't personally fail fast enough. So he went out and he hired a bunch of engineers to all work for him. And he didn't care whether they were the best or the worst because he wasn't trying to necessarily find the one way that worked. He was trying to eliminate all the ways that wouldn't work. And so the same thing with Elon Musk and anybody who's creating anything you know, of significance, especially in the tech world, you got to just keep eliminate, eliminating the things that don't work. And eventually you're left with the thing that does. And where would you say you are uh, just out of interest on the levels? I'm probably two, level two, three, going from willingness to wantingness. Well, that is really interesting, Chris. And here's the thing. Andrea and I, a lot of the times, Andrea is my business partner and uh, has since become my wife. And if, and if um, anybody got a chance to see Andrea, you would know that I learned to sell, okay? Because that's the biggest sale I ever made. People say to us all the time, they come up after a speech and they say, oh, I wish I was fearless like you guys. And we're going like, fearless? You got to be crazy. We're not fearless. You think we could have come up with this idea and written this book if we were fearless? If we were fearless, this would have never even crossed our minds. So the reality is for many, many years, I spent my life pretty much between level two and level three, just like you're saying you're at. And every now and then I find the courage to get to level four. If I can fail faster, that's not the problem. But the big call, contacting the big, you know, the big person, there's a company here in America, a publishing company called Success Magazine. They're kind of one of the kingpins in the, the magazine world. And, you know, first off, for years, we just avoided them because we didn't think we were big enough. And then we started contacting them and they said no to us. And then we said, well, maybe contacting them once a year isn't often enough. So we started contacting them every quarter. And so now we're going after the biggest company and we're trying to fail faster. And it took seven years before we got an article in. So are we learning? You know, am I getting better? Yeah, we're all hopefully are moving up this line. But the reality is you have to keep reminding yourself. You have to keep reminding. I'll be on the phone with a, I'll be on the phone with a customer and they go like, okay, we want to book you guys to speak. I say, great. Okay, so let me get the date and everything. And then Andrea walks over with a note and the note says, ask about books, right? Because I'm like, I don't want to lose the speaking date. So I'm not even thinking about also now adding the books to the sale right? Because I'm not failing bigger. I'm not getting the additional sale. So I struggle with it every day. Andrea will admit to you, she struggles with it pretty much as much as I do, but maybe not quite as much. And uh, you have to keep reminding yourself, am I seeking failure? Am I going after big enough ones? Am I going fast enough? So it is for people like you and I, it's going to be a lifetime struggle because we will always drift back into our natural selves, Mm. which is to not push the envelope. And we have to constantly be expanding our comfort zone. Yeah, stretching your comfort zone a little bit. And then your comfort zone gets bigger as a result. Exactly. Could you explain like the Pike syndrome in the book as well? It might relate to um, you know, how people are feeling maybe stuck in their careers sometimes. Right, absolutely. That's a, it's an interesting um, experiment. It was done by a, an aquarium in Canada. They took a pike whose favorite food in the entire world are minnows. And if you dropped a pike into an aquarium and you put minnows in the aquarium, 
the pike will just swim all over and will eat them all up right away. Just love to eat minnows. So what they did was they took a pike and they put it in an aquarium and they put a glass partition down the middle. And then they put the minnows on the other side of the glass. And as you can imagine, the pike would see the minnows and think, ha, ah, lunch, right? And bam, the, the pike would swim right into the glass partition and, you know, and hit its nose. Boom, and then, the, you know, the pike would be like, what? Hang on. And they see the minnow again and bam, they would, you know, they keep hitting their nose again and again and again and again until finally the researchers knew when they had broken the pike's spirit, the pike, instead of going back and forth, would start swimming in circles in its side of the aquarium. And they were able to take the glass partition out of the aquarium and the pike never left its half of the aquarium and the minnows were smart enough to never leave their half. And so now there's nothing that's separating the pike from getting what it wants, but it's banged its nose too many times and now it's stopped trying. It has convinced itself that there is a, that there is a partition here that it can't get past. And that is really probably one of the saddest stories I've ever heard in my entire life. When I read it, I was just, you know, I couldn't believe it. And then I read story after story after story. They do the same thing with elephants where they have a baby elephant and they, you know, they, they take a metal spike with a metal chain and they wrap it around its foot. And the baby elephant learns very quickly that it cannot get away. And after the elephant grows up, they can take a full grown elephant, take a rope, and a wooden spike and stick it in the ground that could never hold the elephant in place. All it has to do is just try, but it doesn't even try. It thinks it's trapped. These stories, you hear them again and again and again. I think we're very much like that. We have some bad experiences in our lives. We bang our nose you know, a few times and we just say, hey, I didn't enjoy that. I'm not going to try that again. And we create our own limitations in that way, even long after the limitations aren't even there. Yeah. So you've almost got like a self-imposed limitation. And, and how would you recommend trying to overcome those limitations? Yeah. Well, you know, this is where everybody wants to hear that there is a magic pill. In the back of the book, it gives a website and you go in and for $6, you can get the magic orange pill that you take and suddenly all your fear of limitations are gone. And of course, you know, that's, that's not how the way, you know, not how it works. But our limitations, which are self-imposed. I say self-imposed, but it's society that imposes them. You know, society says you should be seen, but not heard. And so we, if we buy into it, then we shrink our comfort zone and we don't say the things we want to say. Was it society's fault or was it our fault that we bought into the premise that that was true? So all of these self-imposed limitations that we have are things that, that have been thrown at us at one time or another. We bought into them and we don't realize that these things really are not true and that we can push back. So what most people want to do is they, they want to believe that you can just read a book like Go For No or some other positive mental attitude book, and you can just make the limitations go away. Oh, I get it. There are no limitations. Cool. And like, they're going to, you're going to go out and your life's going to be different, but it's not true. You're going to go out and you're going to be the same person because you have the same programming what you have now is the mental knowledge that the limitations aren't true. But what you don't have is the emotional ability to get past those feelings that you have. And so the answer is, and I hate to say it, but here's the answer. Slowly, every day, pushing the envelope a little bit more, finding out that when you step outside your comfort zone where you thought something terrible was going to happen and you go like, 
oh, nothing happened, huh? And then your comfort zone gets a little bit bigger. Or maybe you step outside your comfort zone and bang, you do get a rejection. And you go, oh man, that felt terrible. I knew I was going to get rejected. And then you retreat of your comfort zone. But then you go like, okay, let's try this again. You know, nobody says you have to get outside your comfort zone and stay there immediately forever. You need to inch outside the comfort zone. And when you find out that you're not going to die, the world doesn't end. And that maybe things get a little bit better. Maybe you earn a little bit more money or maybe the job you wanted you get, or maybe the girl you wanted to go out with or the guy you wanted to go out with says yes instead of no. And then you go like, oh, that felt good. And slowly, inch by inch, foot by foot, the comfort zone expands. And then one day you look back and you go like, wow, my life is different. And it's hugely impactful. And then you say, how did this happen? And the answer is slowly. And then all at once, slowly, you inch outside of it. And then all at once, you suddenly go like, oh, my heavens, there's a better, bigger world out here. I don't need to keep shrinking. I can expand. It's not an overnight process. It can take years, but you know what? Years are going to come and go whether you challenge your comfort zone or not. So why not five years from now be a better person who's more courageous than being the same person you are today? Because in truth, the comfort zone really is never staying the same size. You're either expanding it or it's shrinking. And the worst thing that happens is you let your comfort zone shrink down around you. Yeah, definitely. I think you're right. It, it's not going to happen overnight. And I guess that's where you, you do get the value in working with a coach as well. They're able to guide you uh, into the stretch zone so your, your comfort zone can grow and hopefully not take you into the panic zone, which is that scary part beyond the stretch zone. Absolutely. I'm big on coaching. Coaching is so, so, so important. And I mean, just, you know, the classic example is if I go to the gym and I'm going to lift weights on my own, you know, I'm going to lift a moderate sized weight. And I'm going to do three reps of, you know, three sets of 12 and be done. I get a personal trainer and the personal trainer is forcing me outside of my comfort zone to the Mm. point where it's painful. And why wouldn't I do this for myself? Why is it that I will lift a heavier weight more times because I paid somebody to stand there and bark at me than I would do it for myself? And the answer is accountability. And maybe we don't want to look stupid, or maybe we just know someone's watching. Mm. And I don't care what the reasons are. Coaches bring that element to the process. So anytime, you know, somebody can afford to hire a coach in any area, it's hugely impactful. Mm. So valuable. Yeah, you mentioned about kind of setting no goals. So how would you describe the concept? Yeah, setting no goals is, I think it's probably one of the most powerful concepts in the book. It's certainly one of the most powerful concepts that Andrew and I have used to revolutionize our own business. And basically the idea of no goals is if if you think about what most people do is they set a yes goal. And so imagine we'll just take, we'll just take a copier salesperson, for example, and the person has to sell two copier contracts a week. That's, that's what they have to do to hit their quota. And they go out on Monday morning and they, and the first call, the person says, yes, all right, I'm halfway to my goal. That afternoon, they go out, they make a second call. The person says, yes, all right, I hit my quota. This is great. I got my two copier sales for the week. What do you think that person does with the rest of the week? They screw off. They do paperwork. And they they ditch off in the the middle of a Wednesday afternoon to go see a movie, or at least when you could go see a movie. And they, they screw up. Andrea and I, you know, when we would get the number, we wanted to get four speaking engagements a month, right? We wanted to speak once a week. 
we get the four engagements in the first two weeks of the month. You think we kept making phone calls? No. We went and laid by the pool. We went to movies. We did anything and everything but make more calls because we had hit our yes goal. So the idea of no goals is to say, forget the yes goal. Ask yourself, what are the number of calls and contacts I could make in a week? And therefore, can I get that number of no's? So let's say, for example, we'll use the copier salesperson example. Let's say they can make four calls a day and you have five days a week. So that's 20 opportunities for no, right? So instead of setting a goal to get two yeses, what if you started the week and said, my goal is to get 20 no's this week. Now imagine, same copy your salesperson. You go out Monday morning and make the first call. The person says, yes. Hmm, well, I didn't get a no there. Second call, the person says, yes. Now it's Monday afternoon. They got two yeses. They haven't gotten any no's yet. And so they're not ahead, they're behind. The mindset is, oh my God, if I'm going to get to my, to my no goal of 20 no's, I'm going to have to increase the number of sales calls I make. I'm not going to decrease the number of calls. And so can you imagine what would happen to somebody who had a no goal of 20 and the first two people they called on both said yes. And now they had the whole rest of the week. And instead of slacking off, they, they doubled down. They, they may come in with six sales, eight sales. Who knows how good it could be? And so that's the idea of no goals is just get away from the pressure of trying to get people to say yes to you. Just ask yourself, how many interactions can I have? And can I get a certain number of people to say no to me every week? And just worry about that. If you worry about hitting the no goal, the yes goal handles it handles itself. The yes goal you know, happens automatically. Yeah, I love that. It's such a powerful concept and you can almost apply it to any aspect of your life really with where you're trying to reach out with people and trying to make a connection and make something happen. Absolutely. I'm quite a big advocate for helping people to uh, test out career ideas whilst they're still in employment to hopefully then find something new without having to hand in your notice and have that drastic cut in income. Right. A big part of that is also uh, speaking to people like informational interviews, you know, trying to test out these career ideas. How would you go about kind of setting no goals related to that? There's somebody, they have a job. And we can get very comfortable in our jobs. We think that, you know, the job's going to be there forever and we don't want to screw up a good thing. And maybe we're not being as paid as much as we want, but it's better than nothing. And we start creating all these reasons why we should just be happy mm. with what we have. The reality is many times there are, you know, most times there are better things out there if we're just willing to go look for them. So there's no better time to go for no than when you're not under pressure. And I know there's all different types of things about, you know, are you being loyal to your company? If you're out looking for another job and going on interviews while you're in this job, well, I'm just going to give you my personal opinion on this. Your company is not loyal to you and will not be loyal to you when the, I'll just say it, when the COVID hits the fan. Yeah. Okay. No one's going to have your back at your company when the company finally says, hey, we need to lay people off. It doesn't matter how much they like you and how great your relationships and how, what, what funny jokes you tell around the water cooler and whether you go out and, you know, drinking at the pub on, you know, on Thursday nights with everybody. It does not matter. The reality is the company has a function and that is for the company to make as much profitable as possible, usually for its shareholders or its owners. So who's watching out for you? And the answer is you better be. And you can be watching out for yourself by constantly exploring to see what things are on the horizon. 
at a minimum, you should be out networking with people and just making contacts and being at events where, where people know you so that if the time comes where you need a job, it's not a, it's not a cold call, it's a warm call. But I think that people should be out. You know, I don't want to throw out a number because if I throw out a specific number, it means that this is gospel. And so, you know, I don't know whether it's, you know, you, you, every, every three to six months, you should be out and going on two or three interviews just to find out what the job market's about or whether you want to go out once a month or if you hate your job, you should be out every week. If you do not like your job and you're not going to perform as well as you should, so you're not going to move up if you're not performing, then you should be putting yourself in a better situation. And your employer deserves to have someone in the job who loves the company and likes the work. So when you watch out for yourself, you're also watching out for the company. Well, I definitely think getting out more is a good way to go about it. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show, Richard. It's been brilliant talking about the concepts and, and your book and your journey and your story. How best can people find out more information about yourself and Andrea and the book? First off, the book is Go For No, just the way it sounds, G-O-F-O-R-N-O. And the subtitle is Yes is the Destination, No is How You Get There. It kind of explains what the book is about. And it's available on Amazon.com. And if you want to find us, just go to GoForNo.com. And uh, we've got a lot of cool things on the website. You can watch you know, different videos and things for free, you know, see part of our keynote, that kind of stuff. We also have a quiz that you can take where you can test and your own no quotient to find out how resilient are you to failure and rejection. And if you take that test and then you wait a couple months, um, then go back and take it again. And what you'll see is if you're starting to apply go for no, you'll see your own personal no quotient, meaning how many times are you willing to hear the word no in order to be successful? Mm. You'll feel your own no quotient going up and uh, that can be very powerful too. Yeah, brilliant. I'll uh, add those into the show notes and uh, yeah, so our listeners can find them. Great. Yeah, so thanks again for your time, Richard. You're welcome, Chris. It was a blast. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. It was a privilege to speak to Richard about Go For No. Some of the concepts Richard talked about were not taking no personally, the close link between failure and success, the five levels of failure, the Pike syndrome and how self-imposed limitations can hold us back, expanding your comfort zone and setting powerful no goals. And we've only touched the surface of some of the key ideas in the book, so if you haven't read it, go check it out. If you'd like some support with your career change and something's holding you back, I've set up a private Facebook group called the Career Change Trailblazers. And this is a place where you can get support, learn and share some ideas. Click on the link in the show notes to join the group. Look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for listening to the You in 5 Years podcast. Keep moving forward, guys. Until next time.